Hello and welcome to The Quiet Living Room, a podcast by Quiet Social Club, bringing you ideas, tips and tools on how to live and work well in a digital world. My name is Eliana and I'm your host in today's episode. We're starting into 2023 with a special guest I'm very excited to introduce to you. Gloria Mark is Chancellor Professor at the University of California, Irvine, and has dedicated the majority of her career to understanding how the way we use technology is affecting our cognitive resources and attention. She's the author of Attention Span, a groundbreaking way to restore balance, happiness and productivity, which is launching this week. And so I'm thrilled to have Gloria introduce her book and share some of her findings and learnings with us today. Gloria, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Eliana, for having me. Gloria, you have dedicated the majority of your academic career to understanding attention and how our digital behavior affects it. How did you originally get interested in the topic and what are some of the changes you've seen in the field since you got started? Yeah, so I'm originally trained as a psychologist and I got into studying tech from my first job. So my my first job was to study how uh, how groups used technology in conference rooms to conduct meetings. And, you know, at, at this time, it was very unusual for any kind of social psych- scientist to be working in tech. But I was fascinated with technology. And then I worked at a research institute where I began to study what's called human-computer interaction. So, you know, the relationship that people have with technology, how tech design affects people's behavior, how people in turn, how the way they use technology affects themselves. And, you know, everything kind of all came together in my psychology background, understanding tech, looking at people's behavior. At the same time, I started noticing in myself how hard it was for me to pay attention when I was using my computer. This was actually before smartphones came out. And I began to notice how I started switching screens and switching apps and scrolling. And and I found it harder and harder to pay attention on any particular screen. At the same time, I found myself being just tethered to my computer. It was very hard for me to stay away. And so I started talking with other people to find out, am I the only one? And other people started reporting that they also were were starting to feel this way. So I thought, you know, being an empirical scientist that I would study this. And I would, first of all, find out to what extent this behavior might be experienced by other people. Is it widespread? Is it unusual? And and I found out it actually was quite widespread. We use the word attention quite a lot in our daily lives and in a lot of different contexts. But what actually is attention and why is our ability to pay attention so important for us as human beings? So attention is an extremely important resource that humans have. And, you know, if you look back to the founder of psychology, William James, he says, everyone knows what attention is. You know, it's it's when you um, allocate 
your whole experience to to something. That's that's what attention is. More formally, we can think of people having a set of cognitive resources or attentional resources. You can think of it as your attentional capacity. And that's what you use to process information. And these resources we have are limited, right? And they drain. And if you're working on a very hard task, you will find out that you start getting exhausted pretty quickly. There have been decades of studies in psychology laboratories where people are given tasks to work on. And they find out that over the course of, say, an hour, their performance degrades. They start making more errors. They start performing slower. And it's theorized because the there is this draining of their attentional resources. Their ability to process information is, is waning. Now, your book obviously goes into a lot more detail about this, but what are some of the things that we typically do in our daily lives that affect our attention and our ability to pay attention? Yeah, so one of the things that people do is they switch their attention very frequently. So they might have one screen where, let's say they're reading something, and then suddenly they switch and check email then they'll switch again to go to social media, then they'll switch to, you know, read some article. So we find it to be commonplace behavior for people to be switching their attention, sometimes pretty rapidly. Uh, we also find, and this has been measured again empirically using heart rate monitors, that people's stress goes up as they switch their attention. And this has also been shown in laboratory studies in psychology that when people multitask, they're switching their attention, uh, performing different tasks, that blood pressure goes up. There are physiological markers in the body that indicate people have higher stress. And when we probe people in the wild, that means in the course of their natural work, and we ask them subjectively how they feel subjectively, they report feeling higher stress. So their perceived stress is consistent with measures of their physiological stress as measured by what's called heart rate variability. In your book, you introduce the concept of attentional states that fluctuate throughout the day. So it seems that similar to when we sleep, we have a biorhythm throughout the day and times when we are more alert and can focus more easily and times when we can do less so. But what exactly are attentional states and how do they affect our cognitive capacity or attentional resources? So one of the attentional states that you're talking about is when, when people are engaged with something and they're expending mental effort. So they're engaged and challenged with something. And we label this a state of focus. Now, you can also be engaged with something and you're not exerting much mental effort at all. So you're playing a you know, simple game on your phone, which I do quite a bit as well, but, but I try to do it strategically. When you do that, or, or let's say you're looking at social media or you're reading the news, that we call a rote kind of attention. You're engaged, but you're not exerting much mental effort. Now, it turns out that if we look at the state of focus, right, you're engaged and you're challenged at what you're doing, we find a rhythm throughout the day. So people don't have constant focus throughout the day. It's just not possible because we have limited 
resources. You you can't lift weights all day without getting exhausted, right? You you would run out of energy. And we find the same thing with people's attentional capacity. And so how do you get to know it? Well, I would start by finding out what your chronotype is. And many people know intuitively what their chronotype is. You know if you're an early person or a late person, or late type, it's called. And um, most people that we've studied have their peak focus times mid to late morning, and then again, mid-afternoon. Now, if you're an early type, you're someone who you're up at 5 a.m., you're ready to get going, you know, an hour later, your peak focus, of course, is going to be earlier in the day. Other people who are late types, you know, tend to, if if you are on your own schedule, you would wake up later and your peak focus would be later in the day. The next thing is start to become aware of when you might be feeling exhausted. Now, it's interesting because we might think, intuitively, oh, sure, we know when we're being exhausted. I used to work straight through and I would just get burnt out. And at the end of the day, I was exhausted. And I wasn't taking the breaks that I needed to. I'm I'm a lot wiser now. (laughs) And I can sense when I'm starting to feel exhausted, I can probe myself. I can ask myself, Gloria, how are you feeling? Are you still able to focus well? And If I can't, then it's time to pull back and it's time to take a break and replenish because you can actually do more, right? If you try and fill up the entire day with hard focus, you're not going to perform well. You need to pull back. You need to replenish and then you can go back and, and do hard work again. It's great to hear from an expert in the field that breaks are really that important, I think. And I'm seeing this really around me as well, that breaks are still very much underestimated. What is a good break to have for your brain? Well, the the best break is to be able to go outside and take a walk because studies show that even a 20-minute walk in nature can make people less stressed. We've done a study where we show that 20-minute walk in nature can lead people to have significantly more ideas. It's it's called divergent thinking. It's like brainstorming. Now, I understand that circumstances don't always allow for people to step outside and certainly may not allow for them to be in nature. Uh, So the next best thing is, you know, get up, stretch, walk around, but I also will say that it's not bad to pull back and do some easy rote activity. And we know from some of the great artists, writers, scientists, that they have used these kinds of easy activities to help them pull back, replenish. For example, the the great writer Maya Angelou used to do crossword puzzles. So she worked really hard. She was, you know, a great writer and poet, and and she wrote how she put in a lot of effort to compose her work, but then she would also pull back, and she used what she called little mind, and, you know, this just helped her kind of replenish, and then she could go back and use what she called her big mind, her deep thought, and she was able to perform better. So, you know, Whatever works for an individual, choose what will occupy your little mind. We know from our research that people 
feel happier and calmer when they're doing some kind of road activity. And you can use it strategically. And that's the key. That's the key is to use it strategically. I'm not telling people, yes, go on social media all day. I I am absolutely not saying that. But I am saying that when it's time for a break, when you need to replenish, strategically, yes, you can do something easy, right? But then you have to be able to pull yourself out and you you just use it for enough time that it takes for you to be replenished, for, for your mood to maybe calm down, uh, and then you can go back to work. What I really enjoyed reading about in your book as well was the importance of developing this sort of self-reflection mechanism, and you called it meta-awareness. Now, of course, some of us will be familiar with this term from the areas of mindfulness and meditation. Why is developing this meta-awareness so important, and what can we do to deepen our self-insight into our digital behavior and to strengthen our meta-awareness? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm i a professional observer of people in the sense that in my research, I observe people. And when I observe people, you know, I've always asked questions. Like if I see a person doing a particular action, let's say they go to check their email, I will ask myself, why is that person doing that? What What made them switch? Right. And I began to apply the same kind of questioning to my own behavior as a as a way to try to understand the reasons for why I was doing these kinds of automatic actions, because I would check email indiscriminately. I would check news. I, I would go to social media. But um, whenever I feel the urge, and I've learned to recognize this urge, I ask myself, why, why do I need to do that now? Is it because I'm bored? Because this is too hard? Is it habit? And the more that I've learned to recognize it, the easier it's become. So it's it's a skill that anyone can can learn, right? And, it, and if you have to, you know, put up a little post-it note to remind yourself to ask ask yourself these questions. This is the first step in developing agency is to become more intentional in your actions. And that's that's what I call meta-awareness, which means to be aware of what you're doing as it's unfolding, right? To, to actually understand why you're doing what you're doing, because then you you're able to change. How has your research impacted the way that you go about your day and the way that you manage your attention? So I would say, you know, one of the most important ways is is this uh, development of meta awareness. That it's it's really made me understand how much my actions were automatic, and you know how I I was doing things without even giving it much thought. So it has impacted, and you know. As I mentioned, I I used to work straight through and get burned out, and I really would get exhausted. And boy, that's that's enough to make anyone want to change. And so I realize that if I can pull back, and if I can be proactive in pulling back, that I I actually can perform much better. Now, there's another idea 
that actually comes from when I first started out, uh, my first degree is in fine art. There's this notion of what's called negative space. And one of the things you learn when, whether you're a painter or a sculptor, is to understand the space around the figure you're creating. And that that space is very important. And you can almost use a what's called a figure ground reversal. So instead of focusing on the figure that you're creating, you you focus on the space around it because that space can be very important. When Japanese design gardens, they make use of this notion of negative space. And the negative space can really be quite, quite powerful and quite beautiful. And so the point here is that during your day, you know, we always think about our work. We think about, you know, let's schedule our Zoom meetings back to back. Let's schedule our tasks, you know, from 12 to 1, from 1 to 3. We think about the figures, so to speak, like in paintings, but we don't think about the negative space. And the negative space is the time that you should devote to replenishing yourself. It's the time that should surround the time that you're devoting to this uh, to this hard work and give that importance, right? And you know that could be you know whatever it is, whatever works for you to replenish, whether it's taking a walk, whether it's meditating, or whether it's just doing some simple rote attentional activity, which a lot of writers and scientists did. The, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein used to peel potatoes and said he got his greatest ideas when he peeled potatoes. So his mind was engaged, right? But he was able to let ideas incubate in the back of his mind. And so for him, that's that's what worked for him. We've seen this more and more over the last decade that there's this fantasy and this ideal of getting back to essentials, going more slowly. Again, we have slow food, slow fashion, slow mornings, slow media. We all want to go more slowly, yet when it really comes to it, we don't actually take these breaks. So first of all, I think the benefits of taking breaks are still not very well known. But then there's also this element of guilt and a fear of what might happen and what you might miss out on if you take a break. What would you say to someone who told you that they don't have any time for breaks? Well, I, I would say you you can do more by doing less. And you will surprise yourself that if you have a full tank of mental resources, your eyes will be fresh. You'll be able to perform much better than if you're just working straight through and not giving yourself a break. I agree. You know, we've gotten ourselves into this mess of a world where we're so interconnected that it's very hard to pull away. And I think it's a problem we need to be thinking about collectively, you know, as a solution, because for any individual to completely pull out, it will penalize that individual, especially like in the workplace, they're cut off from important work communications, they're cut off from family and loved ones. So you can't completely cut yourself off. The ship has sailed. We're we're in a digital world. But we can think of strategies, how to make our lives better, how to have better well-being mm. 
within this this digital world that we're in. It's completely true. I mean, 20 years ago, we used to be able to do most things, work, get in touch with friends, book flights, do groceries, pay taxes without being online. And now this reality seems more and more distant from us. So the ship has definitely sailed in the sense that we are a digital society and we cannot go back to an analog world. But my question would be, has the ship also sailed for designing technologies and applications that promote well-being, foster connection, rather than being a source of distraction, misinformation and cyberbullying, just to name a few of the disadvantages of technology that we are increasingly talking about in the public debate? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. There will continue to be technologies that are developed to seize our attention. I, I think that's a given right? There will be new and better algorithms being developed. And I don't think that's going to change. However, I also think ironically, that technology can help us also recover our attention. And there are some promising technologies. For example, at Microsoft Research, uh, colleagues of mine, and I've been fortunate to be part of these studies as well, They've developed different tools, for example, a smart personal assistant that can prompt people, that can serve as a coach to say, okay, you know, Gloria, you've been working for, you know, for an hour without a break. You know, I think it's time for you to stop and take a break. Or if I'm on social media and I'm there, let's say, longer than five minutes, this assistant might say, Gloria, you know, you've been on social media for five minutes, it's time now to get back to work. So I think these kinds of technologies can help coach us, they should not do completely the work for us. But they can help us learn. And that's the important thing. That's the key to help us learn how to change our behavior, so that we can be our own agents of change. We should not allocate everything to the technology to do it for us, but rather we should be doing it ourselves, but the technology can support us in learning mm. how how we can manage technology better and how we can improve our own well-being when we use technology. It's so true. I think the majority of us forget that we are still in charge and we can still make a decision of how we use this medium that was created to help us. One of the things you mentioned in your book that is kind of connected to this is the idea of designing and having a great day. And obviously a great day in a digital world looks uh, very different to how it used to. So where can we start to think about what this great day looks like for us? And how can we go about designing a day that is conducive to our well-being and our productivity and that works for our individual circumstances? Yes, that's that's a wonderful question. So it's really important to understand your own personal rhythm of uh, focused attention when your attention is at its peak and when it's not. And so you can start by scheduling those tasks that require the hardest work, the most effort, where you have to be the most creative, schedule those tasks at the times when you're at your peak. And, and you can learn to recognize when, when you're at your peak. 
and save the other times for when your your resources are starting to fade. You you can do other kinds of work. So, you know, work that doesn't require a lot of mental effort. So that's that's how you can start. And you can also incorporate what what I talked about, the negative space, which is being very intentional about when you schedule breaks into your day and give a lot of thought as to these breaks because they they are important. They are breaks that can frame the work, the hard work that you would be doing. And so, you know, again, by, by doing less, you're actually producing more. In fact, let me mention one more thing, and that's the idea of practicing forethought, which is imagining how your current actions are going to impact your future self, which could be later in the day. So if I'm going to go on social media now for an hour, what's my life going to be like at 10 p.m.? Am I going to be able to relax and read a book and drink a glass of wine, or am I going to still be working on that deadlift? So practicing forethought, thinking about how your current actions impact, you know, what you're doing downstream later in the day. And I think later in the day is is a good time frame to be thinking about this. This can also help. Now, we spoke a lot about managing our attention and managing the factors that affect our attention. But is there actually a way to also improve? Prove and extend the time that we can pay attention. Spoke about this very briefly, but there have been a lot of studies done to understand what is the stretch of time that we can focus without needing a break. And some some people have suggested that it's 25 minutes, such as in the Pomodoro technique. Some people have suggested that it's 50 minutes. This stretch of time, is there a way to extend that? There are a lot of claims that people make. You know, some people have developed video games that can apparently uh, extend our attention focus and improve multitasking ability. And those are fine. Uh, my question is, do, do we really need those? And, and maybe if we kind of take a much broader view, do we really need to push ourselves more? You know, to, to what end? And, you know, what I'm saying and what, what my book is really about is to give yourself permission to pull back and replenish. And instead of having as a goal to, you know, our main goal should be to be as productive, to produce as much as possible, let's consider having a main goal as optimizing our well-being. Because when you optimize your well-being, you can produce more. There's, There's a theory in psychology called the broaden and build theory which shows that when people feel positive when they have you know positive well-being they actually perform better and mm-hmm. you know they they can generate more ideas they have more energy and so rather than thinking in terms of squeezing in as much as possible into the shortest amount of time let's instead think about how can we maximize our well-being because then mm. we'll be able to produce more and and produce better quality work. In your book you mentioned the term psychological balance. Is this what we need to focus on in order to achieve well-being in a digital world? You know, unfortunately, 
there are so many forces that exist in the digital world that we're subject to every time we turn on our computers and look at our phones that make it hard for us to achieve right. that goal of well-being. For example, our social natures, we're, we're social beings and our social natures compel us to check email and social media. And, you know, there's so many different social factors at play and that's, that's hard to overcome, right? Mm. It's, it's, it's not just the technology, but there is just a number of different forces uh, in ourselves and in the environment that make it hard for us to, um, to achieve this balance. And, and I want to emphasize, we tend to blame notifications and targeting algorithms. And that's the reason why we're so distracted and why we're so exhausted. And yes, that's part of it, but that's not the full story by any means. It's so much broader than that. It's very interesting that you also mention internal interruptions. So it seems that it's not just our digital devices that are to blame for our distractions. You know, we can't blame our distractions fully on notifications and targeting algorithms, as I said, it turns out, and my research shows that we are as likely to interrupt ourselves as we are to be interrupted by any kind of external distractor. Now, you know, we looked at our data and we looked at the the amount of external distractions or in external interruptions that people receive. We also looked at the times that people self-interrupted. In other words, there was no external distractor, but they just for, there was something inside themselves that led them to switch their attention. And we find we looked at the data on an hourly basis. And it turns out when the external interruptions would decrease, people's internal interruptions would increase. And it's as though the way I interpret it is as though we are conditioned to interrupt ourselves to maintain these short attention spans. If we're not getting interrupted by something external, then we begin to interrupt ourselves. And you know, there's there's so many reasons. We're we're sitting in front of the the world's largest candy store. And, you know, within milliseconds, we can access information and people. It's it's so tempting, right? And we get rewarded when when we do that, when we we reward our curiosity. And, you know, we're we're social beings who are curious. It's our natures. Let me also just mention that just the design of the internet itself with its node and link structure. And with its open architecture that anyone can contribute information, that also leads to our distractions because human memory is theorized to be structured as a semantic network. So we think in terms of associations, just like how the internet is, is structured as well. And so there are so many entry points into our mind's network when you're say on a Wikipedia page, you're you're reading content, and we're just primed by so many ideas. That's and we make so many associations in our minds. It's it's hard not to pursue these thoughts, and you know we keep getting these rewards. We're you know curious, and this leads to 
being curious about other things as well. It's both fascinating and scary at the same time to think that distractions are really coming from everywhere. And even when we are managing our external distractions, that there will be some internal interruption coming from within us. Can we learn how to handle these distractions better? Uh, yes, we can. But I also want to mention that when our resources are exhausted, we have less protection in ourselves against distractions. So mm -hmm. when, when we're tired, it's very hard to filter out distractions. And um, my research also showed that when people accumulate what's called sleep debt, that means having accumulating less and less sleep over consecutive nights. You know, let's say you need eight hours of sleep, but you're only getting seven hours. And then the next night you get six and a half hours. And the next night, uh, another six and a half hours, you're accumulating sleep debt. And as that debt increases, our ability to focus decreases and our attention spans decrease. What do people do? They tend to spend more and more time on easy, lightweight activity like social media mm -hmm. because they they just don't have the resources available to be able to uh, do, do the hard work of focusing. It sounds like we're facing this task individually and collectively where we have to find and establish our unique balance in this world that kind of could prompt us to be online and engaged most of the time. And it sounds like the recipe is more breaks, better sleep, and also maybe giving ourselves permission to not go 100% and give 100% 100% of the time. Yes, absolutely. And, and let me also add to that you know, I'm not an advocate for throwing away social media. I, I know a lot of people recommend let's let's just get rid of social media. Uh, I I think it's throwing the champagne out with the cork because I do think there are a lot of wonderful benefits that we get through social media. We we can connect to other people, we can learn information, we can learn news. There are, of course, very harmful effects that can be had with social media, such as misinformation and cyberbullying. And, and that's that's very unfortunate, right? That's it's it's how the digital world evolved. And you know, hopefully we'll be able to do things around that, for example, with better regulation and policy. But I do think that any individual can use social media more strategically. And you can use it by asking yourself how you can get value out of social media for yourself. So social media, a, a system like Facebook, can offer you different kinds of social capital resources. And this comes from the sociologist Robert Putnam. And there's what's called bridging social capital, which is the resources you get from having a large network. So if you're asking, where should I go on vacation? You, you'll get a lot of different responses. Those are That's a great benefit for having mm -hmm. a larger network. But there's also something called bonding. 
uh, social capital, which is the benefits you get from having an emotional closeness with individuals. And you would only have bonding social capital with a few individuals in your social network. And I would say that uh, consider these different types of social capital. And when you use your, your social media, think about what kind of benefits you really want. So if I'm feeling, you know, a bit low, then I might think in terms of bonding social capital. So what about targeting an individual, someone who's close to me, someone who, you know, I can have some kind of meaningful relationship with? That's going to help me. So those are different kinds of social capital. Uh, and so be very goal-oriented and very targeted when you use your social media. And remember that attention is goal-oriented. We pay attention to what our goals are. So if you're going to social media and your goal is, you know, I, I want to know what film I should be watching this weekend, that's your goal. You, you know, post that question, you look for that answer, and then you go back to work. Or, you know, maybe later in the day, you go and check it, but you're very goal-oriented. That's what you pay attention to. You don't just scroll it, you know, without meaning. Well, it really sounds like meta-awareness is going to be quite an essential ingredient in this journey to managing your attention better. Gloria, are there some parting words or some words of wisdom that you would like to leave with our listeners today? So a couple of things. First of all, I want to emphasize that, you know, the ship has sailed in terms of us being in a digital world. And it's not possible to completely pull out. Well, well, of course, some people can. There are consequences. And I think for most people, especially if you're a knowledge worker, it's just not possible to completely pull out. So given that, let's reframe our goal for using technology to think about how we can enhance our well-being. You know, technology was designed to increase our capabilities as humans, right? Every every tool that's been designed throughout history has been designed to increase our capabilities. And for information technology, you know, it's increased our access to information so we can produce and consume more information. And of course, you know, nowadays we can use technology to, for for other kinds of purposes as well. Uh, we can control our thermostats <laughs> with technology. But it's important to keep in mind that our main goal using technology in our digital world should be to be aware of how we can maintain our well-being. Thank you so much, Gloria, for making the time, for being here and sharing your learnings and your experiences with us. It's been a fascinating conversation. As you can tell, I could speak about this for hours. I've taken the liberty to put the link to your book into the bio of this episode so everyone can find their way to your book very easily. And I wish you all the very best and look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Well, thank you so much, Ileana, for asking such wonderful questions. You you really got me to think uh quite a quite a lot about about this topic and I I so appreciate this and it was a real pleasure to speak with you. 
Thank you also to you, our listeners, for being here. We'll be back in two weeks with more conversations on living and working well in a digital world. So if you enjoyed what you heard today, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and I look forward to seeing you next time.